So we're 48 hours into the retreat. It's nice to see you're still here. (laughs) I don't know yet what I'm going to talk about tonight. (laughs) I was handed a note by uh, a friend here on staff. She wrote, nothing that ever happens is wrong. Everything is Dharma. Nothing that ever happens is wrong. Everything is Dharma. That has a couple implications, one of which is she knows that I'm a nervous wreck in front of groups. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also pointing to something that's very true. Interesting kind of to think about what is it that we're, what are we doing coming on retreat? What are we up to exactly? What do we hope for? There's a saying that I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, if it is uh, from the text or uh, another teacher. so that there is suffering that leads to more suffering and there's a suffering that leads to the end of suffering. That, that might come from Ajahn Chah, but I checked in with my uh, Ajahn Chah expert, Annie, and she couldn't quite verify. <laughs> so just leave it as an open question what the source is and now I get to interpret how I, like, how I wish to interpret it. Um, so suffering that leads to more suffering. What would that be? Can I think of the endless activity that we engage in in life, uh, moving around, uh, taking up activity, and buying the endless buying that we do? In a way, we could say that's, that is an, a quest to end suffering, right? A little effort in a very small way to bring suffering to an end, right? We go to the movies or, you know, we try and do something fun. And the Buddha said, when he looked out, you know, with his inner vision at the world and his deep understanding, he said, beings everywhere wish to be happy all beings wish to be happy. So it's not that we don't want to be happy. It's that we're not quite sure the best way to go about it. And yet we do try. That is what we do, I think, during our lives. And a lot of the decisions that we make, right, the things that we do, if you actually look closely at it, there's an effort to be happy. Even an argument deep down, if you're arguing, if you have a partner or a friend that you argue with or a parent or a child or anyone in your life, that argument is to support one's own sense of completion. You know, I want to be right. So that yearning to be happy. If I win this argument, Maybe they'll like me better, which actually has never once happened. I think, <laughs> why do we argue? I'm not, I still haven't figured it out. And I'm totally prone to arguing still. So once in a while in my mind, it's like I, the awareness comes back in the midst of an argument. I think, what, what actually do I want to have happen right now? And yet, even though the awareness shows up, the momentum of the argument It's so seductive. And it's like, it would feel foolish to just say, "Um, I I don't want to argue right now. Like what I was just saying, (laughs) don't believe that. That was just, you know, that was foolish. (laughs) So that's what we do, right? That's what we do over and over again. And then there's uh, the possibility that 
you know, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So I look into that. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say about that yet. <laughs> uh, I think it's important to, to kind of reflect that it's not that we intentionally suffer in order to end suffering. It may feel like being on retreat here, this is an intentional effort to make you suffer. (laughs) It's not. It's not an intentional effort to make you suffer. You know, sitting still for half an hour, 45 minutes, the intention is not that you experience a lot of body pain, a lot of inner turmoil. It's just that that is the nature of things. And that, that's already happening. And that's the gift of coming on retreat is that we actually get to see what is, what is happening and what is real. The Dhamma is what's real. I already forgot what the quote was. I was just looking. I think it's the second phrase was everything is is Dharma, everything is Dhamma. And what that's saying is everything is real. And when I say that like that to myself, I don't doubt that. In the sense of what is real, is real. And then I can say what is fabricated, what is an illusion, in the mind or something that we believe in. It's just that. It's something that's believed in. It's an illusion. So the invitation in being here really is an opportunity to see what is happening in our own mind and body process, the most most intimate space, intimate feelings that we have that we only know, no one else will ever know. We're getting to tune into that, to really recognize, oh, this is what's happening. At one point in my life, I was, I really was overwhelmed by life and all the stresses and struggles. And I was, uh, I was in medical school at the time, completely confused, which I think every other student was as well. And after several attempts of trying to push my way through, it was clear something else was pulling me. I didn't know what it was, but it was something else. And finally turned in my uh, resignation sign the bottom line, I'm, I'm finished. And that's really one of my spiritual interests was something, I want to figure this out. What, there has to be something that is driving this, this confusion. You know, there, is there something that can bring me a sense of ease and peace? I just want to fast forward then. It wasn't long before um, I ended up, just series of fortunate circumstances, ended up with uh, a teacher in Burma. And I'd already been practicing a little bit, so I had some understanding, but I hadn't had a teacher that had really offered me what he, had, what he was offering. And that was just a complete invitation to be with myself. That nothing was wrong. It was so, such a radical concept and an invitation to, to look at my own experience as things to learn about things to recognize and, and 
to develop the quality of, of attention and, and mindfulness. I didn't need to cut anything out. And all the ups and downs, everything, all the emotional fluctuations that we constantly go through. There's so many things that my normal mind would say, I just don't want that to, to be there. I'd rather it go. And at one point I really just, I just was crying from that sense of, just a sense of relief that I could be truly at home in my own experience. And it didn't mean that suddenly everything was okay, everything was perfect, but I could just sense, wow, this is what I wanted. I've, I've wanted this connection to my life. And I wanted, I wanted this opportunity somehow to really feel at home rather than kind of stomping around on this planet in search, endless search, and not getting anywhere. This is an invitation. Invitation to return home to what is most intimate, most close to us. And yet, because we don't know how to, to watch, not quite sure how to allow in what's uncomfortable, or to release that which we're clinging to. I just don't know. It's interesting to look out and to um, just feel such familiarity in the human experience. You know, our, our ideas create such uh, separateness in the sense of who we are. And we can end up living in these isolated um, identities. Very separate, very alone. And the more I connect to my own wish for happiness, for contentment, the more I get familiar with just the aspect of suffering, the natural nature, the nature of that, that it's, this is part of, of being in the human body that's so sensitive, that it very easily gets confused and overwhelmed. And it's so easy then for me to connect with that, that humanity that we all share. I was thinking before I started, the, um, my partner, who's the, uh, the yoga, offered the yoga today. She does illustration work and um, she had a drawing of a proverb. I think the proverb sa- said something like, uh, don't speak unless you can improve upon the silence. It's every once in a while when I'm silent, <laughs> sort of wondering, am I gonna improve upon this silence? And silence doesn't necessarily mean no sounds. I think there's something about the nature of awareness 
that has a deep silence to it, right? That reflects our experience back to us. So mindfulness allows the nature of mindfulness. In a way, it's perfect. Anything that you wish to know about a moment of experience will be perfectly reflected by mindfulness, by awareness. Right, so in that way nothing can go wrong. Feeling agitated. Right, agitation is perfect in the sense that it can be known exactly as it is. Doubt, confusion, right? Awareness can, can recognize these things. Boredom. Boredom that leads to the 10th cup of tea for the day. <laughs> it's perfect, right? So what we're doing now is changing the, the relationship to being caught and identified in these mind states that might be a bit more difficult, we're starting to recognize them. Right? Our normal relationship is that anything that's unpleasant, anything we don't like, we want to get rid of. Seems logical. I still think it's logical. I just know it doesn't work. <laughs> And why doesn't it work? Right, and this is what the Buddha was pointing to when he was saying that there are, there's the reality, there's Dhamma, and that Dhamma is the way it is. It's not the way we want it to be. If it was the way we want it, wanted it to be, life would be unfolding perfectly. No one that we ever cared for would pass or would suffer. We wouldn't suffer. I wouldn't be going grayer. My beard is gray (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) Right, so we age, that's beyond our control. And so that's pointing to the way things are. Things are changing. They're impermanent. And we can't get the results that we want. And yet that's what we do. That's where we're, we're seeking in our activities of life is, if I just get this thing to work out, I'll be happy for five minutes, maybe. Oftentimes the thought that Anything that we buy should have a little warning label on it. I should say, it's like a warning. This may make you happy. Maybe for five minutes. You know, this phone, buying a new phone, if you know, a lot of us have phones and smartphones. Someone in the group today said they did, that they did not have a smartphone, amazing <laughs> in this world. People still go without a, a device. And yet, you know, where on the package does it say, this is gonna break? You're gonna need a new one <laughs> soon. <laughs> it doesn't, right? It's, we're not taught the way things are. Right? So we're always caught in the, the illusion of the way it was, uh, maybe the way we want it to be, right? So we're just constantly running for it. We go for it. And anything that's unpleasant, let's get rid of it. And it's, it's extraordinary that through awareness, through turning attention to what's happening, maybe just for an extra moment, there's a capacity to be with the unpleasant. Even if it's just a moment, that's a radical shift. 
that is pointing to the possibility that unpleasant does not require suffering. The things being out of our control, that change, that loss, needs to be anything else other than things being out of our control, change, and loss. It feels exactly the way it does feel. And it's not to deny that losing people is not painful. We feel that. I'm sharing with a group today that um, there's a story from the teachings that the Buddha has lost his two chief disciples, some of his closest uh, colleagues that had studied with him and fully awakened. These are the most accomplished of the whole Sangha and they were really revered and they passed while the Buddha was still living. And he was with a, a big assembly of the monks and nuns, awakened beings, a lot of them. Don't know exactly the story, so I'm making part of this up. That's okay. <laughs> this is, I'll go on. <laughs> Anyway, so he said, or it's said that he said. Uh, <laughs> this is the problem with Dhamma. You want to be so honest. <laughs> Just happens. You can't quite stop it. Um, so <laughs> it's reported <laughs> sorry, that... <laughs> Uh, this is quite touching, so I'm, I do want to get to this point. <laughs> he said, this is shortly after they had uh, passed. He said, it's as if the light of the sun and the moon have gone out. It's as if the light of the sun and the moon had gone out when I look out to the assembly. Even though he was looking out to all these wonderful beings, just the absence of these two, just recognizing that's the nature of loss. Right, so a fully awakened being knows loss is loss, no resistance, full recognition. Some years ago, I was um, staying at a monastery in England, studying with a a monk there. And there was a nun who, while in the robes, and I think it happened only a couple years before I arrived, she lost in a very short time her brother, who was very, very dear to her, and then her mother and father, who were still very, quite young. And she was re- reporting this to, to the monk, saying, why is it so painful? Why is it so painful? I still haven't forgotten what she told me that he replied back. And before she shared, shared it to me, I was trying to think, what would he say, you know, from the Dhamma perspective? And I thought it'd be something about, you know, let it go or something like that. And he said, because it is painful. Right? Because it is painful. And painful there doesn't mean it requires getting rid of it. 
getting beyond it, getting through it, just opening to it. It is painful. Right, so as we're kind of opening to the retreat, the mind is settling in a little bit, it's really starting to recognize in our own process, our own mind and body, just what's true for us. Very open, honest way, connecting. And then seeing the struggle, you know, I'm struggling, struggling against this, recognizing that. And coming back to the simplicity of allowing, trusting. I might look very calm up here. I'm just checking in because there's a lot of activity in my mind and heart. So. How often do we feel that something is going wrong in our experience? Anytime that that arises in the mind, something's wrong, just get interested. What does that mean, something's wrong? What am I resisting? Right, something wrong can point very directly to the nature of, of aversion. I don't want this to be here. And each time we check and look at our own experience and really connecting to whatever is arising, we're getting more and more familiar with the nature of things, the nature of how the mind is in constant flux back and forth between holding on to something that we want and getting rid of things that we don't want. getting very familiar with the energies of the mind and heart. And as we do this, we really can start to see what is it that, what, what it was that the Buddha was pointing to as far as why it is that these habits of mind of greed kind of clinging, aversion and pushing away, and of delusion or confusion, of not knowing, not seeing clearly why this leads to our suffering. And the more we we are developing our awareness, developing the wholesome mind stream slowly steadying the awareness that connects, that remembers, 
learning to balance the effort and the heart. Learning how to check on the attitude in the mind. And how am I relating to this moment? So all these, all these aspects that we do, they may seem trivial. We sort of try and talk about it or tell someone else about our practice. And yet, this is really very deeply changing the very core habit patterns of our mind. And that's all that's ever been happening. And we just have it patterns that we've formed, that we've gotten used to. We don't even recognize it as being an option anymore. Right? I'm so accustomed to being uh, self-critical or feeling shame. I don't even realize that that's something that I'm doing. It's something that arises in the mind because of a cause and conditions are there. was I? (laughs) Awareness sometimes has a capacity to let go when you least want it to. Are you waiting for me to say something? (laughs) I think I might just um, pause here and open to questions. If uh, I want to ask about anything I've shared or specifically about practice. Yeah. Can you explain delusion a bit? So explain Delusion. Okay. It's interesting, delusion, when we're from the practice point of view, sort of when we recognize, well, if my mind is deluded, how do I recognize delusion? Because I'm deluded. And it seems like this impossible thing that we're going to try and figure out. So partly it's like we use the information that we're told. And delusion here is pointing, you know, it points to a number of things, but on a very basic level, it's pointing that to not recognizing the Dhamma, not recognizing that things are impermanent. And we don't see that. We don't, we mistaken things to be permanent. Right? So another aspect of delusion can be that we don't see that things are not inherently satisfying. We have an idea that um, this basic characteristic of any aspect of our experience can somehow satisfy 
And yet in not seeing that things are impermanent, we don't recognize the unsatisfactoriness of the nature of phenomenon. It's just inherent to the way experience and phenomena are. Okay, so we don't see that. And then delusion also doesn't recognize the impersonal nature of things. It doesn't see things through that lens of things are nature. They arise due to causes and conditions. And from our own inner experience, the inner story is everything is me and mine. Everything comes, starts from a place of I. And yet, as we watch and look at our own experience, we realize more and more clearly it's just causes and conditions coming together. We begin to open that in a more and more subtle level. And so delusion, then delusion can also be just, you know, when we don't have no awareness, we're just caught in, I think Annie described this yesterday, and everything comes together as a single package of experience, the I story. And we have no real awareness of anything. We're not aware, not aware that we're seeing, not aware exactly where we are, not aware that we're hearing, not aware of our thoughts and emotions. Right? So that's that another aspect of delusion. And we could say that um, delusion really underlies, uh, is, a, is the, the ground out of which suffering eventually springs. So anytime there's a sense of suffering at its very deepest level, if you look and investigate, you'll find some wrong view, not seeing clearly, right? And that's what creates then the entire movement that results in, in the discomfort in the suffering. You. Yes. How are we supposed to respond to injustice? Um, I, I think that a lot of people um, kind of like understanding these teachings is based on conditioning. Um, mm-hmm. But that conditioning is perhaps founded upon other suffering. Um, how is it that we're supposed to move through the world with these teachings, knowing that uh, there's just so much injustice? Uh, and how to kind of like um, maybe move forward with some of the things that Buddhist cosmology talks about, um, but not to disregard history and not to disregard, like, I guess, uh, a less appealing reality. So the question was, um, how do we respond to injustice? given the nature of the teachings, or is there something about the teachings that uh, would make it hard to respond uh, to injustice? And, and what was the reasoning again? Did you, what is it that you're pointing to as to? Like, I guess, um, you, know, you know, if you're, if you're conditioning, or like if your background uh, mm-hmm. has made it so that like, you haven't really had a very hard life, uh, which makes it like much easier to say, oh yeah, totally fine, like, is just pain like that's, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. fine. How do you take that same perspective uh, and apply it to someone who's had a different, uh, very different and difficult life? Uh, right, and right. And it's not that easy to just say like, okay, yeah. Uh, right, right. That's just difficult when it's happening for a whole group of people. Or a whole right, group. right. Yeah, so how do we, how do we not use the idea that um, pain is just pain to become a way of feeling almost apathetic to the suffering that we see out in the world? And um, yeah, very important question. And when we look at the reasons why we bring that view into our own mind in terms of how we're relating to our moment of experience, what that's doing when we relate to pain is just pain is we're recognizing the aspect of reality that brings forth an understanding of the way something is. Right? Okay, so this is, 
This allows me to be with this experience that grows my wisdom and grows the compassion. That wisdom and compassion is 100% available both to our own being and the beings all everywhere, all beings. And I think one of the reasons why that gets, it can feel as if there's a, a, a almost disconnect between that kind of idea of saying things as nature and then dismissing, well, okay, if I say things are nature, then it's just nature for other people and, and let them be. Um, is that we actually miss the subtle compassion, compassionate action that we are really saying this is nature inwardly. And to me, it's like, it's almost the same movement. When I'm open to my own experiences, it is immensely compassionate. I don't think I could be more compassionate in that aspect of mindfulness. It is a very deeply compassionate thing. And so then when we are actually thinking about the injustices or the suffering in the world, there is no movement of the mind that then says, oh, it's just nature. The wisdom knows if there's something to be done to alleviate the suffering, that re- that's what responds. Just as when there's suffering in our own heart, we are really responding. Being here is a response to the suffering that we're, that. I imagine something, I mean, something prompted you to come. It may not have been, in, you know, suffering. It may have been a search to understand. But oftentimes what prompts us is some, something that we want to move forward on or to resolve. And so that's a movement of compassion. And that is, that is intimately connected to how we then respond to the world around us. And I think when the mind is more capable to open and not you know, turn away and really look closely how we create suffering in the world, it just creates so much of it. And most of the suffering that we're dealing with on this planet, most of it is actually what we're doing to each other. You know, how do we open to that? So, does that help? Is that connecting a little bit? Yeah, more or less. Okay. I think it's just like, it's, um, it's, it's a really complex kind of question, so like, to just be like, right. As, as the mind gets more and more wholesome, it is the natural response to, to respond with compassion. You'll find that as, as you see in more and more clearly, right, and you're not responding from fear or aversion or distractedness, the capacity to respond to the world is natural. It comes very naturally. And so really developing a wholesome mind is in no way means I'm just gonna be ap- apathetic. It's very much, you know, the Buddha awoke at the age of 35. And he looked out to the world and he, he wasn't sure people would understand the subtle teachings according to, you know, the story. And he, he debated. And it took, it took um, a Brahmin to encourage him, say, look, there's just, beings will get it. There's, there's a bit of dust. And this may just be sort of a way of of having the story in there, but he then spent the next 45 years offering teachings to beings to, to alleviate their suffering for no other purpose than out of compassion. And that's what the teachings connect us with, really is an ability to be compassionate with, with the life that we, that we have and the life that surrounds us. Thanks.
So the, so the question was, there's a lot of mixed messages in society or just a lot of different types of teachings. And there's some messages that say that we can, we can create with our thoughts or create the reality that we want maybe with our thinking and how to sort out maybe what's, what to follow. You know, ultimately, these questions are gonna, they're gonna be resolved in our own our own heart and rather than my sort of telling you viewpoint um, it's important to in some ways trust and trust your own exploration with that and you know these these particular set of teachings are really pointing us to watch to watch what's what's real watch what's happening watch the nature of things. And that, you know, in the, the Buddha, according to the teachings, he said, you know, he was with the, uh, the bhikkhus at one point, the monks, and he grabbed some leaves from the forest and picked them up and he said, bhikkhus, which are more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? You know, all the leaves in the trees. And he often asked those kinds of rhetorical questions where it's clear, okay, obviously the leaves in your hand are fewer than the leaves in the trees. So they said, yes, Venerable Sir, the, the leaves in your hand are fewer. So just so that which I know is the leaves in the forest, but that which I teach are the leaves in my hand. And he was offering teachings that were very practical. And they were practical to the point, pointing to the suffering that we experience and the path that leads to the end of suffering. And that's what this, this path is, is really a very pragmatic opportunity to look into our own mind, heart experience and see, well, what does cause suffering? And when I, when I do practice with awareness and I watch and I open, what happens? And nothing to believe in, but just sort of testing it out and see what happens. And so, you know, if you, if you're, my only encouragement is when you're using, when you learn some of the tools that make sense to you, like awareness, allowing and opening, I would say bring those tools into your exploration and just watch, see what you learn. Um, But the actual specific guidelines here is we're not creating things. We really are, if a thought arises, we watch it, we see it as a thought rather than following the content of the thought because we want to really understand what is the nature of something. We want the experiences to be revealing their characteristics, that they are impersonal, right? That they are changing, they're fleeting and constantly in this flow. And so if we have an agenda to do something with our thoughts, we will be overriding the nature of things. We never actually get an opportunity to explore what's actually happening. And so that's why the encouragement is not to create, not to uh, form reality, but to, to observe, to be mindful. Take another question. I noticed on the message board, it says that we have interviews at 11 p.m. tomorrow. Is that correct? (laughs) So the question is, uh, interviews are at 11 p.m. If it says 11 p.m., I won't be there if it says 11 (laughs) p.m. We'll correct that. Thanks.
So she's noticing that she has a companion in her mind, which some of you may have also noticed. Maybe not her companion, but your own companion. (laughs) 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 We've each got our own companions that we carry around. Actually, I was, I was, I was, my uh, partner and I were thinking of going to see an animation film and I didn't know which one. So I just typed in animation trailer and I was looking to see what, I want to see what is it that you wanted to go see. And I, I still don't know, but the trailer that did come up, which is one that will be released, it'll be fun to kind of see whether or not this is a, an interesting film. But I think for people that are practicing mindfulness, this is going to be an interesting film because it's funny that I'm talking about an animation film. Um, so anyways, the trailer was showing a family unit talking to each other over dinner or breakfast or something. And one person was talking and we then, the camera kind of zooms in and goes right into their, you know, into their eyes. And then now we're in their mind and there's five characters all chatting away, all with different control switches, <laughs> pulling levers. And they're arguing about what to do next. And then, you know, I think it was the wife, maybe in her typical family, you know, the way they produce that. And, uh, um, you know, so they, so then she, they, so she says something and then uh, we zoom back out. And then we go into the, the husband's uh, mind. And then one of the characters is saying, oh, she, did she say something? pay attention. And then the other one's like trying to direct the guy <laughs> to like pay attention. So anyways, th- this, this clearly is universal because Pixar seems to be aware <laughs> of these, you know, these characters that are in our minds. <laughs> so I would say what happens is the quality of awareness when it gets sharper, it starts to notice things and it feels weird at times because now we're knowing more about our own mind. But it's just, that's, that's what's been going along our whole life is this inner chatter. And sometimes it's very subtle, inner commentary. It's natural, it's what the mind does. And so just recognize that's what's happening. Right? Oh yeah, the mind's just listening to that. It's like, oh, it's on that, it's like a radio station or something. It's just playing and um, recognizing it as a subtle level of thoughts that are just kind of buzzing. Um, and not much to do about it. You're just recognizing and not, you know, need to follow the content and get drawn down the stream with it, but just recognizing it is and arising. Right? And just continue with the awareness, whatever you're knowing. Sometimes we think we have to figure out, well, what is this? Um, and oftentimes we try and figure out before we even have been with something long enough to get connected with it. So really just, we want to just stay with things. And when, when that understanding is ready, to really recognize the nature of something, it comes. And that's our own, that's our own insight, our own understanding. That's not because we've heard something or read something, but it really comes from having watched it and seen it and been close. Just let me take one more question. Yeah. Yeah.
inside I feel good about it. Mm -hmm. But it's all about me. Mm -hmm. I'm all obsessed with me. I'm excited for my future. <laughs> I'm excited for my circumstances, my relationships, my conditions. Even over the next few days, I'm hoping you could give me some advice for how to continue cultivating depth Did anyone not hear the question? Um, so the question was, um, he has uh, incredible loving kindness towards uh, all of us and to you and to me and to all of his friends and any objects of his metta practice, there's a lot of loving kindness. Um, but everything's about him and uh, about his plans and his hopes, and he's obsessed about his own uh, future, his own well-being. So I'd say your mindfulness is getting better, and you're noticing that's what the mind does. And you know, the idea that we can get that that it's going to stop—that's a particular aspect of the mind is going to stop—is really just that's coming in now with aversion. Right, so we want to just allow. We want to recognize. Oh, this is this is what the mind is doing. It's thinking about I. And as much as you can, recognize these are thoughts, and the content of these thoughts are saying I, me, mine, and there are thoughts that keep arising. Right, they're thoughts, impersonal thoughts. They're just it's the nature of thoughts to have content, and it's just thinking just keeps happening over and over again. And we are so accustomed to being at the center point, the sense of I about everything. Anything that arises is about I, about me. And I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that that's true for you, right? Otherwise you wouldn't be here, I'm pretty sure. If, if we weren't obsessed with our own, just our, you know, Little things, that's how we get caught. You know, and that when we say bring in right view of recognizing things are nature, one of the things that that's doing is beginning to change the habit of the mind of saying something is I and actually getting clear about well, what is it? It's a thought. A thought doesn't come with a label of mine it's a thought that arises. Pain, you know, in the, in the knee can teach us a lot about the difference between when it's my pain, I want to get rid of it. I want to get rid of my pain. But when it's pain and we're aware of it, now we start to change the tendency of the mind to get caught in the, the I-ness that's sort of automatic and creates a, that, that aversion that's really strong. And so one of the first things that you do when you're recognizing that something's uncomfortable is bringing the right view to it because that already helps the mind to calm down. Oh, it's just nature. Not denying anything. It's not saying, you know, we're still here the way we are and yet it's, it's nature. It's not adding a huge production on top of it. Right? Things are just natural. They are what they are. And this is particularly... Um, evident to see around views when we say it's my views. These are my views and they're worth protecting and they're worth, you know, fighting and going to war for. And what really is all that's happening is views are rising in the mind. They differ from someone else's views who are attached and identified to their views. And before you know it, you have conflict or you have an argument on a smaller scale. It's anything, any moment of awareness that recognizes something already starts to change that, those in, you know, that way of relating to experience. And the very fact that you're seeing it means, it's not like suddenly you, you became obsessed with yourself on this retreat, mm. I'm sure. You know. But seeing that is what begins to develop the insights. So, so we'll pause here and really want to Thank you for your very kind attention. I felt your presence and 
Um, we have a chanting and more sitting in about 30 minutes. And the Dhamma is ongoing, so the invitation is to continue to be aware as much as you're interested and have energy for. It's up to you. Uh, for my encouragement and gratitude. <laughs>